One of the most dangerous places on earth that you can be is in the, stuck in the middle of a minefield with no idea where any of the mines are. And that's a little bit where I feel this morning as we're going to try and go through um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is that this chapter is a bit like a minefield. Paul covers a, a wide range of topics that we're just not going to have time to go fully into everything, but he talks about sex and marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage. Um, and so I tread very carefully and cautiously this morning. Um, I want to speak in a way that's pastoral, um, in a way that I'm not going to ignore what Paul says. I don't want to gloss over anything that he says. I want to touch on it. But I want to acknowledge that there are many of us in this room that are from all over the place. We have a wide range of backgrounds. There's a wide range of experiences and places in life. And so as I go through this, I want to be sensitive to where you all are at as well. I don't want to unnecessarily um, blow anybody up. Um, but as we'll see, as we look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what I think we're going to see is that we really have a deficient view of marriage and especially a deficient view of singleness or not being married. Um, and we'll see that as we look at what Paul has to say about it. And so this morning, we're going to look at a principle. We're really going to see what God, Paul says to everyone. Then we're going to see what he says to the married. And then finally, we'll see what he says to those who are unmarried. I'm going to invite Carol to come up and read our passage um, for us and then pray for us as we start. So if you wouldn't mind coming up. So it's 1 Corinthians 7 if you're not there in your Bibles already. Good morning. I'm, I'm uh, honored and humbled to read, and I'll be reading from the NIV. And as I pre-read this scripture, I gave great thanks for those who impart wisdom to us <laughs> on these matters. 1 Corinthians 7, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has their, this gift and another that. Now to the unmarried and widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. 
how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as, his, as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from a commitment? Do not look for, for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but you, that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, and he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he shall live. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Let's have a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, this time of praise and worship today, uh, for our, our freedom and uh, for the beautiful weather and rain you've blessed us with, and just this time to come together and be together as a family. And... Um, what this family of believers means to each of us and in, in how we hold each other up in times of uh, praise and in times of need. Lord, we do thank you for the leader you've brought to us who um, 
divides your word evenly and um, helps us to understand and impart wisdom to the words given to us through your word. These things we say in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Try this mic. See if this works a little better. Um, thank you, Carol, for, for reading that for us. Um, so our, our first point, um, if you're taking notes, is really our general principle. And so it's point number one for everyone is that we need to embrace what God has given us. So point number one is that we need to embrace what God has given you or, or given to us. And this is really in kind of 17 through 24. Um, this is what Paul um, is discussing. If you want to just go to the first point there, David. Yes, thank you. Um, and so this is a big deal because the Corinthians, we've talked about this before, are very concerned with upward mobility. They're concerned with the Corinthian dream. They want to get bigger and better and more money and a bigger house and more fame and more influence. They want to gain all of these things. That's what they're after. And one of the main ways you can do this, right, is through marriage. So they're worrying, well, who, who do I need to marry? Who can I get? How can I, you know, get somebody who's going to be a good political alliance for me, who's going to have some good business interests so I can just move up and move up and at them? And what this still can tend to bleed into their Christian life as well, where they can start to think, well, okay, what do I need to do? How can I maybe, you'll Christianize it, and well, how can I serve God the best? How can I do the most for God? But what Paul is telling them here is, look, 17, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my, my rule in all the churches. That really summarizes it. It is there only one verse you take away from this passage, or if there's anything you, you're struggling to understand, come back to 17, because it really summarizes what Paul is saying, is, look, you can serve God exactly where you're at. If you're married, you can serve him in your marriage. If you're unmarried, you can serve him in your not being married. If you're not engaged, you can serve him there. If you're engaged, you can serve him there. Wherever you are at, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, just serve God there and embrace it. Don't, don't seek to do something else. Don't try and get away from it. Generally speaking, um, just to embrace what God has given you. And so he uses a, a couple of different examples there where he says, you know, there those who are married, you might wish that you weren't married. There may especially be some days you wish that you weren't married. Those who are, are widows may wish that you could get remarried. Those who are single may long for marriage. But he's saying, look, wherever you find yourself, if you can, just live the life God's called you to. Because where you're at, God's allowed it. God's let this be. So just embrace it. And he uses a couple of different examples. He uses the example of circumcision because that was a big deal for the church then because they still had lots of Jewish believers. And then they had... Other believers who weren't Jewish, and so they're saying, oh, you need to be circumcised. No, I don't. And Paul says, hey, just whenever you got saved, whatever you are, just stay there. Just embrace what you've been called to. And then he uses the examples of slaves and freedmen, which he's there. He changes it a little bit. I don't want to get too much into that. But he says, hey, I mean, are you a bondservant when you were called? Well, don't be concerned about it. Now, if you can get freedom, then go ahead and do that. But understand, God can use you right where you are. You don't have to be in a different situation and a different state of being in order for God to use you. God can use you wherever you're at. In 24, he kind of bookends it again in this section. So, brothers, sisters, whatever condition you're called, just remain with God. Why? All of this is just so you can do what God has assigned you and what God has called you. So that's, that's kind of our guiding principle. I'm not going to spend much more here, but as we move into discussing the, the married and the unmarried, this is really what it comes back to. As Paul's just saying, what God's given you, live that out. So number two, or point number two, if you want to take notes, is um, really that marriage 
is for holiness, not sex. Marriage is for holiness, not sex. And really all relationships are for holiness when they're Christian ones, but especially this is what Paul does in speaking about this. And this, at this point, we're actually are turning a, a bit of a, we're kind of at a crossroads in the letter to 1 Corinthians. Paul's beginning to shift because he starts this chapter by saying, now concerning the matters about which he wrote, and then he's going to do that a number of times. He'll do it again in chapter 8, chapter 9, and some other places. And what he's doing now is he's responding to some questions that the church in Corinth had. Where they wrote him a letter and said, Paul, here, here, we got this question. We don't know what to do about this. We don't know what to do about this. What do you think? And so here, what he's doing is saying in verse 1, he's saying, okay, concerning the matters which you wrote, you wrote me this question, or he's summarizing their argument or whatever they were saying in verse 1. And that's why that's in quotes here. He's saying, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, the reason it's in quotes is because this is not Paul's words. Paul is not saying this. He's saying, okay, you, you are saying this. And what they were doing is they were, again, starting to get caught up in some Gnosticism. Talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about um, different ways to view the body and how they were starting to view their bodies as bad. So they started to think, well, maybe sex is just bad, period. So, okay, since we're going to try and follow Jesus and honor Jesus, we're just going to avoid having sex at all. And so that's why they're saying it, sex is bad, basically. Very quick summary of what they were saying in verse 1. And so they're saying to follow Jesus, that's just what we're going to do. We are going to just ignore it and stop it completely. And this is really an overreaction from all the sexual immorality that's exploding everywhere in Corinth, right? There's brothels in every corner. It's just a hotbed of sexual immorality. And so they're saying, well, maybe, we, maybe it's just all bad. We'll just avoid all of that. And so what Paul is saying in two, then, is he's responding to this question. So we have to keep everything he says in context. Context is important. Okay, if you just rip the Bible out of his context, if you rip Paul's argument out of what he's saying and just try and go crazy with it without understanding the principles or what he's speaking to, you end up in weird places. But that's why he says in two, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman his own husband. He's not saying this is why God made marriage, because otherwise we'll just fall into sexual immorality. That's not what Paul's saying. What he is saying is, guys, you, you don't understand. Okay, you think that you're going to be extra holy by just avoiding sex, period. Well, look, that isn't, that's not going to work. Look, that's, not, that's clearly not going to work, because look at all the temptation around you. And this is why, partly why God has given you marriage. And what Paul is saying is this attempted spirituality, you trying to, to gain God's favor through this, is really going to fail. And this is why he then goes into 3 and 4 and starts talking about, you know, a husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, a wife to her husband. We'll, we'll explain that a little more in a second. But what he's trying to say is forced celibacy is not going to work. Okay, you can't just decide that you're going to do this and you're going to force your spouse into it and we're just never doing this again because we're trying to follow Jesus. Say, no, 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 no. That, that clearly, all that's going to end up to is lead you into more temptation and sexual immorality. This is a big issue in the Reformation. This is what a lot of the Reformers argued with the Catholic Church about was, look, you're, you're forcing people into this. You're saying that sex is bad and that's why we have to avoid it. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, no, this is fine. But... You know, normal sex in marriage is good, but the marriage is not just for that. Now, when Paul mentions this in 3 and 4, this is, again, this is one of these minefields here. And he says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Okay, most times when I've heard this talk, we stop right there in the middle of verse 4. 
Okay? And I mean, we laugh, but you know you've heard this. I, I am sure I, I will bet all the money in my pocket, which isn't much, but I'm willing to bet it, that almost all of you, especially women, have heard a pastor somewhere, somehow use this verse and say, wife, you must have sex with your husband anytime he wants you to. And to not is, is sinful because look, this says you don't have authority over your own body. Heard it in sermons, heard it in books, seen it in commentaries. And they say, look, see, that, that's what this means. And take it and say, this means that really, men, you do have authority over your wife's body and she must be sexually available to you anytime you want at all to fulfill your every sexual need and desire. Okay, that's not what Paul is saying. Because you got to read the rest of the verse. What's the rest of it say? Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. He's saying this isn't a one-way street. If that was what he was saying, he would just say that. Okay, wife, you don't have any authority over your body. Do whatever your husband wants. Also, husband, you don't have any authority over your body either. So that doesn't mean you get to do what you want. It means neither of you do exactly what you want. Right? This is just like we talked about in Ephesians 5, where you know, wives submit. It's really all of us are supposed to mutually submit to each other. Now, there's a pastor in Missouri recently who was in the news. It was all over the news because he was preaching about this passage and these verses and a number of other garbage things. But again, that's not what Paul is saying. But what he is saying is that the point of marriage isn't to fulfill one person's sexual urges, but it's to be more like Jesus. And it's for both of you to, to come together equally and to follow Jesus together, to serve to each other, to submit to each other, to give up your rights, to give up what you want, to give up what you think that you need. Why? For each other so that you can both honor Jesus. And he goes into, this is again part of what he's saying in 5 where he says, don't deprive one another except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. Lack of control. Again, we need the context here. This is not saying the only valid excuse for not sleeping with your spouse is because you're praying together. That is not what this is saying. He's speaking because that's what they're doing. You've got one spouse who's now got an idea. Hey, you know what? I, I think God says we're not supposed to have sex anymore. So that's what we're doing. Paul's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. No. That is not what the Bible says. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Now, if you both decide that you think sex is bad and neither of you want to do it, okay. But look, that, that's a mutual decision. That, that kind of thing can't be one way. But he's not saying that's the only excuse ever. Because, again, the point of marriage is not for us to just fulfill all of our sexual desires. It's to be like Jesus. Because listen, this is a thing we can forget too. You can be in a Christian marriage, married to a spouse of the opposite sex, and have a normal, healthy sex life. And it, that's still actually be, you could still be in sin. Just because you're, you're saved, just because you're married to an opposite, opposite sex spouse and you're having sex, that doesn't mean that it's automatically good and holy. Why? Because it is, needs to still be about Jesus. Still has to be about serving each other. Still has to be not selfish. Right? So there's a lot. I don't want to get too much more into that. Um, but then he switches now. I'm going to kind of ignore 6 and kind of through 9 because we'll come back to that when we talk about the unmarried. But he begins to talk about um, divorce in 10. He says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So then he kind of goes on to talk a lot more. So 
What is Paul saying about divorce here? Well, generally what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, look, as believers, to the best of our ability, we should avoid divorce. As much as we can, if it's up to you, under normal circumstances, do your best to avoid it. You shouldn't be initiating it. Now, he says this phrase, not I but the Lord, and that's a phrase you heard repeated a number of times, right? He says it in 10, he says it again in 12, and then he says it a a number of times kind of throughout the, the rest of this chapter. Now, what Paul is not saying here when he says, not I but the Lord, he is not saying, hey guys, here's just my opinion, take it or leave it, do what you want with it. That's not what Paul's saying. What he is saying is, okay, I, Paul, apostle of Jesus, given authority over you, like as I planted this church, I have authority as an apostle. I have the Holy Spirit. He says that right at the end of 40, I think I too have the Spirit of God. It's kind of maybe humble sarcasm, at least the way I read it. That Paul is saying, to the best of my knowledge, I think this is what you should do. I think you should do your best to avoid divorce. But he says, not the Lord, because he's making it clear, this is not a command. This is not a rule. He's not saying if you get divorced, you're the worst ever, and, and that's it. And why? He's saying that he's being pastorally careful here because he knows, well, there are circumstances where divorce is allowed and where it's going to be. He's going to give one in a minute. And he knows Jesus himself gave exceptions for sexual immorality. But what he is saying, so that's why he doesn't give a command. That's why he doesn't give a hard and fast rule. I like rules. Rules are clear. Okay, gray is harder because then there's lots of exceptions. Well, what about this? What about this? What about A rule is good. I can just say no. No, ever. That's not what he says. But what he is saying is that we do our best to avoid it. And one of the the exceptions he gives here, kind of 12 through 16, he's talking about, again, a very specific circumstance for the church in Corinth where they're a new church, right? People are coming to faith all the time. And there's not lots of Christians in the city. And so you have plenty of instances where one spouse is coming and converted and a follower of Jesus and the other spouse is not. Okay, that kind of leads to some conflict in marriage, wouldn't you think? Where you got one spouse, all of a sudden it's changed. Hey, I don't want to go to temple anymore. Hey, I don't really like you sleeping with these prostitutes anymore. Hey, I'm not going to be worshiping all these gods. Go, whoa, 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 what is this? What is it, right? This leads to conflict. And so this is happening in Corinth. And Plutarch, who is a, a contemporary, not a Christian, but at this point he wrote and said, the wife ought not to make friends on her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends. And the gods are the most important friends. Okay, so that's the the attitude at this point. So the Corinthians would not have liked it if you had a spouse who then converted to Jesus, I don't want to serve your idols anymore, I don't want to serve any of that. That would lead to scandal. That would be horrific. They'd want nothing to do with them. And so what Paul is, that's why he says here in this, to the rest I say, not I, but the Lord, if a believer or if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And the 13, if a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So he's saying, look, if they're willing to still make this marriage work, then you need to stay there because, you know, the principle, embrace where you are as God has called you. But he he then gives the, the exception, which is why he doesn't make this a rule in 15, 16. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God's called you to peace. 
So there he's saying, look, if, if you've come to faith in Jesus and your spouse wants nothing to do with Jesus and wants a divorce and wants to be gone, then it, it, it's okay. Paul's saying he, he releases you, that be, be at peace. Now, that's not what he would desire. That's not the best. That's not the goal. But he's not, again, he's not making rules. He's not saying we're going to kick you out or put you under church discipline. And kind of 14, 15, it goes through this deal where it's talking about the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, but they're holy. Part, what he's just saying there is, look, it's good if you can make this marriage work and they're willing to stay there because they're going to see you follow Jesus. Your kids are going to be raised in a, at least in a place where one of you is trying to follow Jesus. And this is good. That, that It's not saying the holiness is going to rub off on them and they're going to get a ticket into heaven because of your faith. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying you can be a witness to them. And that's why in 16.2 it, it ends as well in saying, well, how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Paul is filled with lots of hope, of a longing and a hopefulness that maybe both of you will come to faith in Jesus at the same time. And what a wonderful thing um, that would be. So that, that's the goal, is conversion and holiness. And so, so that's part of, that's really a lot of what Paul says on marriage. I'm going to shift now um, to the unmarried um, here. I know there's plenty of other things I couldn't completely cover in the time we have. Um, but if you have other questions, we can dive into it. But no, number three is the church should champion the unmarried. Number three is the church should champion the unmarried. Paul, in 25 through 40, and really he does some of this kind of in 7 through 9 as well, Paul really champions and praises and talks very highly of the unmarried. Very highly of the single, very highly of the divorced, very highly of the young who are engaged and then decide to not get married. He elevates that. Now, as a church, I don't mean just us as Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, because I, th I think we actually do a really good job of this. I think generally, larger speaking, the church does not do a great job of this. We do a really good job of elevating marriage. We do awesome at that. We talk about the importance of marriage, the importance of the family and raising kids. And, you know, marriage is, is a symbolic of Christ's relationship to the church. We do that well. But what we can tend to do is we kind of forget or leave singleness or we leave the, under, the unmarried kind of in the, in the wind. And sometimes we can swing so far that we end up looking down on those who are unmarried or single, especially if they're young, right? Church ministries, even churches that are bigger and have their own, you know, a young singles ministry, really what do they even design it around? Well, trying to get everybody married so we can move them into the other ministry, Okay, that's just, and then if they stay there too long, well, that's weird. There must be something wrong with them. What, what's going on? What are you doing here? Don't, don't get it. Right, but we know that's, that's how we tend to treat this. Or when we talk to those who are single or those who are especially young and unmarried, we're like, well, what's wrong? Why haven't you got married yet? Don't you know anybody? Oh, here, I know somebody who's married. I've talked to um, some of my friends from college who are still unmarried and fairly young, and they say this is their experience almost every Sunday, that somebody has to, wants to set them up with someone else. And usually it's not even they have somebody great. It's just, well, I know someone else who is single, and, you know, they're a guy and you're a girl, so, you know, you're both single. What more do you want? Just get married. Right? That, that's kind of the way that we can do this. But Paul gives a very different vision of singleness. In, in 7, 7, 
He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, which is unmarried. But, again, the same principle, each has his own gift from the Lord, one of one kind, one of another. He says, if I could pick, I'd pick that everybody was unmarried. That's what Paul says. That sounds a little different than what we normally hear. Sounds a little different than what we normally can talk like. And why does Paul say this? Well, he says this for a number of reasons, but partly why he says this is he sees that singleness gives a unique opportunity. Being unmarried gives a unique opportunity to be fully devoted to Jesus in every aspect of life. He says, you know, again, 25, I don't have any command. He's not saying that you all need to be unmarried or single. Don't run and get divorced. That's not what Paul is saying. 28, because if you do marry, you've not sinned. But I I would spare you that at the end of 28. And then 32, he goes, I want you to be free of anxieties because the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. He's trying to say, like, singleness, not being married, is not about just preparing for marriage. That's also, whenever I have large times when I've heard the church or people speak and talk about singleness, that, that's the way they talk about it. The good. Oh, this is so good. Now you can work on yourself and get ready so you can be awesome at marriage. It doesn't sound like what Paul's saying at all. Paul's saying, that's great. You can work on yourself and Jesus and then stay there forever. That's amazing. We don't tend to do that, but the church should. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying it's even better. Now, this anxiousness, the anxiety of marriage, it's not he's saying, hey, everyone who's married has anxiety problems, although maybe some of you do. Okay, they're, this week, being home alone with Calvin, I've, I've felt some anxiety for sure. But what he is, so he's not talking about anxiety in, in the same way that we are. What he is talking about in 34 really gives it away. It's his interests or her interests are divided. He's talking about attention. Saying, look, okay, I've been alone with Calvin all week. Okay, that takes a lot of my attention, right? So I got to pay attention to him and make sure he's not killing himself. Make sure he's not doing something he shouldn't be doing. Make sure he doesn't destroy the house. Right? I don't have, that takes time. Saying that's what marriage does. You need to and you should be paying attention to your spouse, to your family, to these things. Now the person who is unmarried doesn't have a Calvin they're running around chasing all day long. Doesn't have a spouse they have to worry about. What are they doing? What do they think about this? You know what the only thing they have to worry about, as Paul is saying? Generally speaking, again, he's saying you just have to worry about Jesus. And that's it. You say, what a wonderful good this is. 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay restraint on you, but I'm trying to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He's saying being unmarried gives you a unique opportunity to spend all that time you would be spending on some spouse, on someone else, to just be spending on your relationship with Jesus. Which is what I do. Not me, this is Paul speaking. That's what he's saying. Paul doesn't hate marriage. Okay, it's clearly not what he says, especially you look at the way he talks about it, Ephesians 5. 
and how marriage gives us an example of the gospel. And he doesn't at any of this say marriage is terrible, please don't do it. He's saying, look, I just, I wish you were all single because there is a, you need to get a better view of how awesome singleness is, how awesome it is to be a widow, how wonderful it is to not be married. This is a good and beautiful thing. That's what Paul's saying. And this is radical. Okay, this is still a little radical and weird for our time period, for us. Now, the world may champion singleness, but just for self-focus, not for Jesus' focus. But this is radical for Paul's time period. Okay, how many, un, how many single women do you think there were back then? Okay, not many, right? It's... There's not lots of great times that in throughout history it is to be a woman. This especially isn't a great time to be a single woman. Because you're not gonna, you can't own property, you can't really have a job, you can't really do a lot. It's all dependent on who you get married to. Now, I was reading this, I, I couldn't help but think about um, Little Women, um, the, the book, which I haven't read the book. I've only seen the newest movie, so you can throw stones at me. But I, I'm working on it. It's on my list. Um, but I, I really enjoyed the movie. And so it's all about these four sisters and kind of growing up in their anxieties. And most of their issues in, you know, early 18th century, 19th century is related around, well, who are we going to get married to? Because that's all the pressure. We got to put on dresses, go to these parties, dance with boys, and figure out who, who we're going to get married to, how that's going to help our family, how it's going to help us climb the social ladder. And there's one daughter, Joe, who doesn't want to get married. She just wants to be an author. She just wants to write. And so that's her whole problem. The central conflict for her in the book is, well, the whole, everyone's telling me I have to get married, but I don't want to get married. I don't want to do anything with that. Well, Paul, if he was reading that, would be a big fan of Joe and say, don't get married. That's fine. Go be a writer. Go, go chase Jesus. You don't need that. Now, he is saying you can if you want, 36. And this is a lot. With the, when it's saying virgins, um, like in the NIV, it's a good, good translation too. It's really just talking about those who are still young or betrothed, those who are still in the very young marrying age or thinking or wrestling. Everyone's putting the pressure on them. But he's saying 36. If, if you think really not behaving properly toward your betrothed is his passions are strong, there he's not talking about sexual passions. He's just talking about heart passions. If you're excited, you really want to get married, you're spending a lot of time thinking about it, good. Let him do it. Let them marry. It is no sin. This is not a problem. But, 38, you know, he who marries his betrothed does well, but he who refrains from marriage will do even better. He's saying it's a really good thing to not and why? This is what, just reading this, it's just causing me to, to examine myself in the way that I've thought about singleness or, or talked to or, or, or thought about the unmarried and showing that, you know, this is not a bad thing. It's not something to look down upon. It's not something, you know, even we're, we're, we're going through our search committee, right? And we're looking and talking, we're spending a lot of conversations talking about, well, what's the kind of person we're looking for? One of the things we talked about, well, do they have to be married? Do they have to not be married? And well, you know, just like any, well, it'd be great if they were married because we get two for one, there's more people, selfishly. That'd be, I'd like if they were married because then, you know, me and Bree have some, you know, another couple that are hopefully closer to our age and we can hang out with, it's good. Well, Paul's saying, hey, it doesn't matter at all. Hire a single. Jesus himself was single. That should frame a lot of the way we view singleness, shouldn't it? If the God that we worship didn't get married, he was fully human. He was perfect. But that also says something that, well, I guess we don't have to be married either to be perfect. 
One of the things he, he mentions here in going back to the anxiety when he's saying in 26, in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. And then kind of 29 through 31 where he's talking about, you know, the, the, the world and it's passing away and there's lots of issues going on. Right now what's going on in the city of Corinth is there's kind of a worldwide famine that's happening. Okay, how anxiety inducing do you think it is if there's a food shortage? Okay, it's not great. Now, how much more anxiety-inducing would that be if you were married and you had kids? Okay, there's more worry there. And we had the storm that came through, not, you know, knocked our power up for not that long. We didn't have hot water for a couple days. Didn't really bother me that much at all until I started to think about my boys and, oh, well, we have to give them baths. Well, that, okay, you know, oh, well, if power's out, whatever, it doesn't matter. Oh, wait, no, we have a little baby. He needs to be warm. Okay, now I'm a little more worried about it. All right, so that's part of what Paul is saying is there, there's advantages in beauty and goodness um, to being unmarried. So some good examples of this. There's a professor at DTS who I really loved um, named Dr. Caruvilla. And he's a single guy in his early 50s. And he intentionally, when he was younger, decided through reading passages like this and looking at Paul and said, you know what? I'm going to spend the rest of my life not being married. It'll be a celibate, and I'm just going to be able to give Jesus my undivided attention and devotion. And he has. I mean, he is a full-time professor at DTS, and he also has a doctorate in medical school and is a dermatologist on the side. Now, why can he do that? Well, because he's unmarried. He doesn't have kids. He spends all of his time. He'd give out, you know, their office hours, and he would just say, well, here's my cell phone. Call me whenever, because... I ain't doing anything. I'm just by myself. So I'm available. Right? It, it gives you, and he would talk about this in the beautiful way of saying, look, like this is, when it's intentional, it's for Jesus. It just gives me more time to talk and to serve my Savior. Now I could spend my free time writing all these commentaries that you guys can read. Wouldn't have been able to do that before. Another example I, I think of are um, Christians who in the LGBT community who are believers and who look at the scriptures and say, you know what? Well, I look at what it says, and it says that practicing this kind of lifestyle is wrong. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to embrace what Paul says, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life as a celibate, not being married, following after, because I want to obey and be obedient to God's word. What a good example that is of holiness of living for Jesus. Shouldn't we champion that kind of thing? But what does it do if we celebrate and we say, no, being married is the only way, and then how do we answer these people who are stuck here? We don't know what to do with that. No, we, we as a church should be, we need to champion the unmarried. Now, I don't have as much time here to talk about remarriage, but Paul does that some kind of in 38 or 39 and 40. He mentions, you know, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be remarried to whom she wishes, but only, only in the Lord. Please, just marry a Christian. Yet, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And so Paul gives his instances, the main way, primarily, best instances he thinks of when he thinks about remarriage is when the spouse is dead, then you're, you're free to do this. But it's better if you don't. And why? Because, again, there's, there's beauty um, in being able to give Jesus undivided devotion. Undivided devotion. So when we think about how, how do we apply this or, or what, what do we do with this? I know there's, there's just a ton here. Um, 
feels a bit like drinking from a fire hose. But as a church, I think that we really should and should continue to do this, to just be a champion for those who are unmarried and following Jesus. And I love how well we do this. I love um, that our our church really celebrates um, and champions widows. I love how many in our church are unmarried. Um, I hope that that continues, that that doesn't go away. I hope that those who are unmarried and those who are married and those who are young and those who are engaged would all find the church as a place where they are welcome at the feet of Jesus. And we don't make people feel like you have to be something else before you can come into our walls. So I, I think for, for all of us, and maybe this is just for me, but we need to make sure that we, we don't, when we talk about marriage, we don't talk about it as a way as if that is the only way to honor Jesus. Because Jesus, again, was not, not married. And Paul was not married. And Paul's saying, if you've got to pick, pick that one. So if we err anywhere, because we like to pendulum swing between two things, right? We like extremes. If you've got to fall somewhere, maybe we should fall where Paul does, more in the area of celebrating um, the singles and the unmarried. And why is this significant? It's significant, too, because we need each other. Right? Church is a community. We need people in our lives that are different than us. We need people in our lives that are at different stages than us. We need people in our lives who are younger than us. We need people in our lives who are older than us. We need people in our lives who are married and people in our lives who are not married, people in our lives who are widows, people in our lives who are divorced, people in our lives who have been remarried. Why? Because all of us together can help sharpen each other. Because we can point out things to, about following Jesus that we may not have seen before. Those who are married can show the singles, hey, this is what Jesus is supposed to look like. This is what his marriage and his relationship to the church is supposed to be. And those who are unmarried can show to those who are married, hey, when we go and are with Jesus one day after the final resurrection, guess what? We're all going to be like this. Marriage is done and it's just going to be us and Jesus and all of us can give undivided devotion to him. We need each other. We need to make sure that we champion the unmarried. So just kind of a summary of where we've been. The the main guiding principle here is that we all need to just embrace what God's given us. If we're married, great. Do your best to say that way and honor Jesus. If you're, and then we've seen that marriage is for holiness. Finally, you know, the church should champion the unmarried. Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, you don't have to be in a different situation or a different place for God to use you. Or if you're, you're a widow now, you didn't miss out. And now, well, the main place of God using you is over. I can use all of us wherever we are, whatever our circumstances are. We just need to embrace the calling, embrace the gift that he's given us, whatever it is, and honor him to the best of our ability. So what we just need to do is we just need to chase Jesus in whatever circumstance he's placed us in, married or unmarried, and let's do it together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, to come up as I close this in prayer. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us. Lord, there, there are passages like this one that, that are difficult, uh, that are hard to preach, that are hard to understand, that are hard to, to work through and to apply. Lord, I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. Lord, I pray that anything that came out of my mouth that was just of me and not of you, would it just go in one ear and out the other? But Lord, would your word, would your words pierce our hearts? Lord, would you help us to see the way that you think about marriage? Would you help us to see the way that you think about singleness? 
And would you help us to see that all of our circumstances, wherever we are, is an opportunity to serve you with as much devotion as we have. So we just ask, would you help us do that, Lord? Would you help us to view whatever circumstance we are in, not with our eyes, but with yours? And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we continue to worship our Lord through song. What a beautiful day that will be. Uh, and, and that's the day that we hope and we long for. Our benedictions from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I encourage you to abound in hope this week. And before I forget that survey too as well, um, that's just for our search committee. I encourage you to fill that out. It should be, you can fill it out online or in paper. Or you can dump it in the offering box, give it to any of the committee members, an elder or me. Um, however you can get it to us, it'd be, be helpful just so we can um, get your input. Um, but God bless you. Abound in hope this week. You're dismissed.